Specialty Story Session Number 152. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and this week I'm excited to have a conversation with Dr. Max April, a pediatric otolaryngologist who has been out of training now for a while and is also the program and fellowship director at NYU. So we have an amazing conversation about pediatric otolaryngology, what brought Dr. April to that field, to that specialty, what he looks for in applicants to the pediatric otolaryngology fellowship and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. We start the conversation by talking about what brought Dr. April to his field. Great. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. And, and, and let's start with otolaryngology. So that is a, a big word for certain people. And uh, a lot of people like to say ear, nose, and throat. And otolaryngology means the ear and the throat. And some departments around the country, not ours, uh, use otorhinolaryngology, even a bigger mouthful. So it happens to be an interesting question for me. I was in a medical school program at Boston University that allowed my last two years at the undergraduate level to take one course a semester at the medical school. And it was a, a program they called the M-Medic program. It was a, a uh, unlike the six-year program, which you shaved years off medical education, this was still the eight years. But the idea was that in your last two years, by taking some of the courses already at medical school, when you got to the first year of medical school, then you could explore what you would like to do going forward. And that is exactly how I got into otolaryngology. So I was uh, uh, third and fourth year of undergraduate. I took biochem and, and micro and had about 50% of my first year as an elective. And I had planned, I was a very big sports person growing up. and loved uh, any sport, loved them all. And at Boston University, one of the more famous physicians there was a guy named Bob Leach. And, and Dr. Leach was the head of the chairman of orthopedics. And he just so happened to be the Boston Celtics team doctor. And in uh, at that time, he was the Olympic team doctor. And the Olympics were uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, really kind of different than they are now. So as a fourth-year medical student, uh, fourth-year undergraduate student, I got to meet Dr. Leach. And uh, really thinking back, um, it was a fascinating time. It was the beginning of arthroscopy, and he was the first person doing knee and uh, mostly knee 
arthroscopy. And at the time, there were no video monitors. There was nothing. (laughs) And the only person who could see the surgery was the surgeon through an endoscope. And none of the residents wanted to scrub with him because basically you'd be holding the leg (laughs) for an hour and a half while he did the surgery. You couldn't see, you couldn't do anything. The only benefit was that you could hear Dr. Leach describe the anatomy and what he was doing. So I got very lucky as the uh, fourth year undergraduate student that I got to go in the operating room with him. And I did that twice. And, um, and I applied for, uh, to, to have these six months, I could go to his office uh, two days a week over the six months uh, of the first year of medical school. And we were all said it was going to be my career, orthopedics. I would follow in Dr. Uh, Leach's uh, uh, footsteps. And um, again, kind of a blast from the past. Uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, Tuesday after Labor Day, was the beginning of first year of medical school. So on Friday afternoon, I come home. I was working during the summer. And I come home, and on the answering machine, no cell phones, on the answering machine was a message from Dr. Leach's secretary. And she says, I'm really sorry to tell you this, that Dr. Leach, his schedule is too filled with going to Eugene, Oregon, where the Olympic training was, and the Celtics, and he has to uh, uh, rescind his offer for you uh, being in his office two days a week. And that Friday, it was my life had changed. It was something I wasn't expecting. I go in Tuesday morning to the assistant dean, Dr. Colbert, and I say, what am I going to do? This is, you know, I've planned, I've, I've, I've thought about this forever. And he says, well, I know I heard and I'm sure you're really upset, but we have another very famous person here at Boston University is named Stuart Strong. I said, great. Who, what does he do? Orthopedics? No, he does ENT. <laughs> I go, ENT? What is that? <laughs> and, and Arthur was, you are going to love this person. You are going to get more out of it. You know, uh, yeah, sure, you would have been with Dr. Leach and it would have been exciting in certain ways. But Dr. Strong is the best mentor at this institution. So I go, All right, what, what is it? So I get to meet Dr. Strong. And as they say, it was love at first sight. <laughs> uh, otolaryngology just was amazing. And Dr. Strong was the best teacher, the best explainer, the best physician, and the most amazing surgeon. So I got to follow him two days a week for the first six months of medical school. And that was how I got into total oncology. You know, I've been doing this podcast now for several years and it, it just, there's just such a commonality between physicians and the specialty they practice and the mentors they had coming up in the field uh, or coming up in medicine to begin with. And it's just amazing the the impact that the current generation has 
on the future generations. And sometimes it's it's awesome and, and it's exciting, but sometimes it breaks my heart a little bit because I hear from so many students that physicians are just like, don't go into medicine. This isn't, <laughs> it's not what it used to be and you don't want to do this. And so it's, it's got this double-edged sword sometimes too. It, it really is. And um, I can only hope more the positive edge than the negative edge. Yes. But, but the one thing about my story, and I've told this, as I said, I'm very involved in medical student education here at NYU Langone and uh, the Grossman School of Medicine. And, and one of the things I, I really uh, preach is you have to keep your eyes open to everything. Yeah. I mean, ear, nose, and throat. What what is that? It, it just isn't on anybody's radar, or very few people. And I happen not to have had my tonsils out as a young child, nor did my sister. So, so it just wasn't something I even ever heard of. And uh, as you said, a mentor can really uh, pave the way for your future. Yeah. So that led you to otolaryngology. What was it about the pediatric world that interested you? Great. So uh, otolaryngology is a, a five-year residency. And in otolaryngology, one of the beautiful things is you can take care of newborns, premature babies to a person during their last days of life into the uh, their hundreds. And, and um, there's so many different specific specialties in otolaryngology. So I'll just go through the five major ones. Uh, obviously, I ended up doing a fellowship, a one-year training, which is now either one or two years of pediatric otolaryngology after five years of residency. But uh, the main categories are uh, pediatric otolaryngology, rhinology, and skull-based surgery. So that's the sinuses and the anterior skull base. Head and neck surgery, which is always a uh, favorite of medical students because the anatomy, when, when they see head and neck surgery, and it's usually oncology, but it can uh, be it can be thyroid surgery, it can be parathyroid surgery, uh, salivary gland surgery, parotid and, and uh, uh, some mandibular gland, and otology. And otology is for ear-related problems. And a subspecialty of otology is neurootology, where uh, otolaryngologists and neurosurgeons work together on uh, acoustic uh, neuromas and other tumors of the lateral skull base. And the last is facial plastic surgery. And facial plastic surgery has obviously uh, had a lot of uh, increase more recently uh, in um, people being interested. Yeah. What was it specifically about the, the pediatric world, the, the patients that you were seeing, the procedures that you were doing that, that really drew you to it? Great. So I finished my residency in 1990. And at that time, with all of the subspecialties, so if you did ear, you kind of only, if you're an otologist or neurotologist, you only see that patient. It might be a newborn, it might be an elderly patient, but only ear related. 
skull base really was only called rhinology at the time. But again, you can see the gamut of ages, but you stick with rhinology. Head and neck, cancer. And and facial plastics, usually uh, um, a, a different type of patient. The beauty and the thing that drew me to pediatric laryngology is that I can do ear surgery. I can do nasal surgery. I can do neck surgery. I can do plastic surgery. I can do all of otolaryngology, all the breadth of otolaryngology in pediatrics. So my oldest patient might be in the early 20s because I certainly follow patients and we'll get into uh, maybe some of the specifics that that I do, but but um, the point is you can practice all that you saw in your five years of residency training and apply it to pediatrics. And the second thing was at the time it really was the newest specialty. So the fellowships started maybe three or four years before I did my fellowship, which I thought not only did I want to pursue a, a, a career, but I really liked uh, innovation. I liked thinking about newer ideas, newer techniques, newer treatments. And I thought that pediatrics uh, and pediatric otolaryngology allowed me to do that and and uh, kind of on the cutting edge versus something that was already worked out so clearly. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or mis- misconceptions around pediatric otolaryngology? So why do I love pediatric otolaryngology? Number one, uh, children, it, it, it's just... You either connect with them or you don't. And, and that is certainly uh, a joy. I think that um, from my own perspective, and there are many fellow physicians that can uh, look at it in a different way, I really did not want to deal with cancer and uh, poor prognosis. And um, to me, it's, 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 it's much more appealing, much more um, makes me uh, happier in dealing with uh, things non-oncologic, things that we can help. And uh, not that it always ends up perfectly, but at least the prognosis uh, is better. And, um, And what's really amazing in pediatrics is that you can see how children that go through really difficult times, uh, medically, surgically, intensive care, uh, how they can respond and and get back to where they should be so well. When it comes to traits, and especially for you being the fellowship director there, when it comes to traits of good pediatric otolaryngologists, what do you think makes a successful physician? That's a great question. So pediatric otolaryngology, obviously your patient is the child, but you need to be able to 
not only converse, but, but have the parents understand what the problem is. And that is not always uh, so easy. And um, in a lot of ways, uh, when we're dealing with certainly younger children, they can't tell you what the problem is. And, and, uh, and that you, you look at signs versus symptoms uh, in, in younger patients. And it is quite an undertaking to be able to advocate for the child at the same time as explaining all that needs to be done or that could be done to the parents. And the more uh, we get into the uh, digital age and and the more and more uh, information that is available to parents, it 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 makes that job even worse. They're they're kind of the newer thing over the last ten years of my practices, and it's getting worse and worse every day. Parents will come in, you know, my child needs X, Y, and Z <laughs> because I saw on the internet that that's going to fix problem A, B, and C. And, uh, you know, that, that can be somewhat frustrating. So, so that is something that people in pediatric specialties in any way, when they have to deal with the parents and answer their questions, they're going to see more and more of. <laughs> yeah, that's always, that's always the, uh, the conundrum of well, you, you always want to know that the parents know the, their kid the best and, <laughs> right. And Dr. Google always necessarily always isn't right. Um, so that's a, a fun conundrum to be in, to have sensitive conversations around, around that. Yep. And in pediatric oryngology, one of the other things that's very interesting, and I'm sure there are um, a lot of examples throughout medicine. Uh, pediatric oryngology is very, uh, it's a very small uh, uh, group of, of practitioners across the country. And so in New York, there are about mm, 12. And, and uh, so in one of the biggest cities, and uh, there are not that many pediatric oryngologists. So often parents will seek several opinions, rightfully so, especially when surgery is being contemplated. And um, that also is a potential challenge. Yeah. And, you know, it's very, we, we uh, in pediatric oryngology have a New York group and we get together yearly and uh, um, try, uh, we have what's called the New York uh, Airway Day. So we have a whole day dedicated to pediatric oryngology for the residents. And um, in addition to get all the programs together once a year to present cases, not only to enlighten uh, otolaryngology residents about some of the more unusual pediatric otolaryngology cases, but also to improve our uh, collegiality and discussions about newer topics and uh, trending ways to deal with uh, problems. You talked about surgery. So a lot of students coming up and pre-meds as well, they go, oh, okay, otolaryngology, that's a surgical subspecialty. I'm going to be in the operating room all the time. That's what I want to do. What, is, what does a typical day look like or a typical week look like for a pediatric otolaryngologist? That's, that's really uh, 
different for everybody. And if I could go one step backwards, your your question is is great. And when I speak with medical students, um, first in otolaryngology, then we'll get to pediatric otolaryngology. It's amazing. So um, I like to say, uh, give this example. For instance, uh, in heart-related problems, you have cardiology, a medical specialty, and cardiothoracic surgery, surgical. In kidney problems, you have urology, surgical, and you have nephrology, medical. In GI, GI uh, endoscopy is performed by medical doctors and surgery, GI surgery by general surgeons. So in every specialty except ophthalmology and otolaryngology, you have a medical and a surgical specialist. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the equivalent would be optometry and audiology, but those are non-physician providers. Correct. For sure. But, 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 um, in, in correct in for physicians. So one of the beauties of otolaryngology is, uh, in medical school, the amount of anatomy, physiology, and function of the ears, the nose, and the throat is probably the smallest you get to learn about. And why? Because it takes special instruments to look into the ear, certainly in a good way. Everybody has an otoscope, but nobody has a microscope in the office but an otolaryngologist. To look in the nose, everybody has a, a flashlight, but nobody has an endoscope. To look at the larynx, you can't even do it unless you have a flexible or a rigid scope. So otolaryngology, nobody will encroach into otolaryngology because there's no other specialty that can actually perform the physical exam. So that to me allows for some people, and in fact, it doesn't mean whatever choice you make in the beginning when you first finish residency and in the end of your career, but it allows you to change. What do I mean? There are some of my colleagues that do only medical otolaryngology. They don't operate at all. They are general otolaryngologists. They are diagnosticians. They may be even an otolaryngologic allergist. Wow. And, um, and, and they are office-based. We have, uh, in our department at NYU, we have two people that never go to the operating room. And you can be like a head and neck oncologic surgeon and be in the operating room four days a week and only see patients one day a week because they don't need much time to go over a CAT scan or an MRI that shows a tumor with the patient and that patient will be in the operating room for eight hours, 10 hours, and uh, whatever, you know, is necessary. And pediatric otolaryngology happens to be kind of right in between. I spend either two or three days a week, and it kind of alternates, in the operating room and the rest uh, in the office. I would say 60% uh, in the office and 40% in the operating room. And the, as you age and as you mature and, and maybe want to start slowing down a little bit, it allows you to reduce the amount of time 
that you are in the operating room if you want. Yeah. Good. What does call look like for a pediatric otolaryngologist? Is it something that typically do at home or are there emergencies that you have to come in for? What does that look like? So call is uh, for all of otolaryngology. Um, it, it revolves around kind of two things, foreign bodies and uh, airway obstruction. So uh, uh, trouble breathing, strider, ingestion of foreign bodies and bleeding. So nosebleeds, bleeding from other uh, 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 problems. Those are basically, well, that's not true. Infection also in the winter, we see our share of uh, abscesses, um, but that, that's kind of uh, a lot less over the spring and summer. So those are our usual call responsibilities. Pediatric otolaryngology, even more so, is foreign bodies and uh, abscesses than general otolaryngology. And um, it, it has evolved. I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, Ryan, when, when uh, we, or certainly when I uh, started training, we would get called for epiglottitis maybe once a month, once every other month, and then miraculously, uh, a vaccine for amophilus influenza came around in the 90s, and we never saw epiglottitis again. And I haven't seen uh, a, an infectious reason for epiglottitis in at least 10 years. You can get epiglottic swelling from medication, etc., but that has taken away one of the most serious emergencies pediatric laryngologists dealt with. That was a real life and death situation uh, when the epiglottis would swell within hours from an infection and we'd be involved either in doing a, an emergency tracheotomy or at least getting the child intubated so uh, to secure the airway. Do you feel like pediatric otolaryngologists have enough time for life outside of the hospital? So, again, there are uh, pediatric otolaryngologists after the fellowship, they would go into private practice. And uh, there are many uh, that do, I would say, uh, less than 50%, but but I would probably say 30% or so, maybe 40, go into private practice. And without the academic um, responsibilities, uh, I think you can certainly come up with a practice that allows for uh, outside activity, for sure. And, um, you know, it depends how big the group is and call coverage, et cetera. And in academics, there are other responsibilities for teaching, for courses, for papers, academic uh, uh, pursuits that, that do uh, impact upon your time. Wow. Let's talk about the 
residency and fellowship a little bit. You talked about the the training path, how long it takes, the subspecialties, the, the fellowships subspecialties. For maybe uh, an ENT resident who wants to get into pediatric otolaryngology, what what should he or she be doing or what what should they be doing to make themselves competitive to match or is it is it something that if you want it you can do it uh that well that's an evolving question (laughs) this year obviously everybody this year throughout uh, whatever specialty they want to pursue is going to be quite unique. And, and I'm sure you know that uh, all of that, we're not having any in-person interviews. Everything will be virtual. Yep. And um, and we're also not having any sub-internships and uh, everything will be virtual. And, and that's going to really uh, create some challenging uh, times for our committee that that's responsible for ranking the residents. But let's go back a step. For medical students, I would certainly encourage every uh, school curriculum is different. Otolaryngology fits into some where they get to take a one-week or maybe two-week elective on their general surgery uh, block, their 12-week block, that that allows them to see what otolaryngology is. And I would certainly encourage everybody to do that uh, as one if they're interested in a surgical subspecialty because, as I said in the beginning, otolaryngology is something that is probably not on many people's radar before you get to see it in the operating room or in the office. Mm-hmm. Number two, it is, it is uh, uh, one of the more competitive residencies to obtain. So you should try to make your CV, your, your, your resume better as good as you possibly can. Clearly, some residencies, including ours, are interested in academic pursuits and publications and research. And, and we, uh, when we review applications, we do take that into account. So if people are interested, there happens to be an increasing number of medical students that are taking a year off between their third and fourth year. And so once they've done their third year of core uh, uh, rotations and some small amount of electives, and they've decided which way to go, if that person is interested in otolaryngology, more and more people are taking a year off and doing research. And uh, 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 at the same time as doing research, getting to know so much more about otolaryngology. And uh, uh, there's some institutions that are even encouraging that uh, across the board. For the osteopathic medical student or resident who wants to get into pediatric otolaryngology, what do they have to do to overcome any sort of negative bias? Well, uh, in pediatric otolaryngology specifically, and uh, uh, the numbers are amazing, so there are about 40 spots every year, and that includes 
so for instance, at NYU, we have one spot, but at Cincinnati Children's, they have four spots. Boston Children's, they have four spots. So when you add it all up, they're 40 spots. They're not 40 institutions, but 40 spots. Yep. And uh, in the past, um, we have always had 60-something applicants. This past year, for the first time, and nobody knows why, we had 19 applicants, 19 for uh, 40 spots. And um, so I will tell you this year, the match was a uh, buyer's market, not a seller's market. And any uh, MD or DO that applied, uh, to my knowledge, nobody did not match. Wow. Okay. So a lot just depends on, on the year and who's applying. It and, is. Yeah. It is. It is amazing how, um, and I certainly don't think it will be a trend, but it was what it is this year. And we all at the fellowship meeting uh, were, were, were trying to figure out why that, you know, why that happened. And, and some of the reasons include, well, it's been so competitive in the past, people thought they may not get a spot, so they don't do it. Well, that's not the right message to send. Um, and uh, if, if that were the message and that's what happened, that's a shame. Yeah. Okay. What do you wish the primary care provider, so in this case, potentially the pediatricians, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help their patients and help you? That's a great question, Ryan. Um, I am a big believer uh, about communication and you need to listen. We as specialists see the child once. That pediatrician has seen that child, depending on how old they are, 20, 30, 50 times. They have a relationship with the family that you will never, ever have. And if you, in my opinion, don't enlist the pediatrician and have them see your perspective, then your ability to treat that child and help that family is much less. So. In these days, a lot of uh, uh, templated uh, medical records, I think that that is not helpful um, for the pediatricians that get, you know, a a three-page templated uh, note. They're not going to read it. And and I'm a, a, a little bit old school in that respect, that either if it's really a, a, a significant problem uh, that needs to be dealt with right away, I'll pick up the phone and get the pediatrician on the phone with the parents and the child in the room because we need to make a decision one way or another quickly. If it's much more of an elective thing, then I think a letter to the pediatrician um, explaining the conversation I had with the parents will go a long way. And in general, uh, the next part of your question is what do, what do I think uh, primary care providers, especially pediatricians for pediatric patients, need to be aware of is uh, our need to identify sleep 
problems in children. Sleep apnea really has been underappreciated um, because the child isn't sick. The child isn't coming to the pediatrician. So if you don't explore, how's your child's sleep? How is their snoring? Is there restless sleep? Is your child tired during the day? These are questions that might come up in uh, a yearly checkup, but it also might not and can kind of be missed and thought of, oh, the kid snores, that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Definitely good to know. You can't diagnose something if you don't think about it. Hmm. <laughs> what do you like the most about being a pediatric otolaryngologist? So I like, as, as I alluded to before, the ability to kind of do so many different things. Um, ears, nose, throat, neck, plastic surgery, oncology, not oncology. Um, it's it's uh, always different. It's never the same. Um, and that is what I like. One of the other things that I personally like is uh, innovation. And I've been uh, privileged to, to invent and to uh, uh, make instruments that have been helpful for um, pediatric laryngologists in our ability to take care of kids. And I also feel that you need to keep an open mind. And, and um, uh, I'll tell a quick story um, that goes across all walks of medicine. Um, in pediatric laryngology, because it's so close, so small a specialty, we had an international um, uh, meeting, and and unlike any other uh, academic meeting, this was called Dialogues in Pediatric Laryngology, and the idea was uh, several professors, it was three or four from America, it was three or four from England, there's a very big uh, pediatric hospital, Great Ormond Street, that trained a lot of pediatric laryngologists, also from Australia, from France, and throughout the world, the professors got together and they nominated or whatever, uh, more of the younger people. And instead of presenting data or presenting, uh, here's my experience with 50 patients of this, you would present to the front row of the professors and the back two rows of the younger people ideas. And the professors would say, uh, oh, that's, and, and give constructive criticism. So uh, uh, you'd present usually a new technique. This is what we thought um, and, and get everybody's idea before you delved into it further. Well, one of the presentations was one I will always remember. And, and the presentation was interesting. And many of your listeners to this podcast are going to say, what is he talking about? But at the time, there was a ditto sheet. It was before copiers even. So the guy, this was in the early 90s, and, and he, he handed out a ditto sheet that had 20 questions. And in the 20 questions, it was about tubes which is, uh, uh, they're called tympanosomy tubes or ventilation tubes, and you put it into children that have either recurrent infections or fluid in the ears. And it's one of the most common 
uh, surgeries performed in the United States, let alone obviously by pediatric oncologists. And the ditto in the 20 questions had three, all the only three he cared about were the three, but he disguised it. And remember the the audience was only about 30 people, the the 10 professors and 20 younger people. And it said, what tube did you put in in residency? What tube did you put in in fellowship? And what tube do you put in now that you're 5, 10, or 30 years out of fellowship? Okay, those were the three questions. The other 17 were dressing and had nothing to do with his uh, presentation, but nobody knew that. So to make a long story short, uh, out of the 40 people in the audience, three, only three, did not put the tube in that they learned either in fellowship or in residency. Hmm. Three out of 40. 37 put either the tube in they learned in residency or fellowship, which is amazing because there are about a hundred different tubes that you can put in. Some last longer, some are bigger, some are gold, some are titanium. Everybody has their own kind of opinion on what tube to put in. But this, an academic gathering of pediatric oncologists, very few people changed what they learned in fellowship and residency. And that to me is, it's not right. You need to keep everything available uh, for you to improve your ability to take care of patients. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely lots of data out there showing that it's, it's not uh, just otolaryngology. It's, it's most specialties, if not all uh, people practice the way they were trained and, and don't really learn new things, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So that would be, a key, as you said, across all specialties. So I gave you the, that really opened my eyes to the problem. I mean, how do you explain 37 out of 40 not change when there are so many other options out there? Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> that, uh, that's the kind of stuff I like talking about, uh, just uh, human behavior and getting just so wrapped up in the day-to-day that you don't have time to s- step back and look at the big picture again like you, you have in fellowship and in residency. Uh, that's right. So I'd uh, like to listen to that podcast. So email me <laughs> one day. when that one's available, Ryan. Uh, will do. Uh, any last words of wisdom for the, the future hopeful pediatric otolaryngologist? So I would encourage you to, uh, as I uh, discussed earlier, in your third year, take that one or two week block uh, during your, your core rotations to see otolaryngology. And, and if it is not going to be the specialty you choose, you will at least get a better and a clearer perspective about the very important senses of hearing, of smell, of taste of breathing and uh, what otolaryngology really is. If that is what you get interested in, I would encourage you to uh, uh, certainly improve your resume to the best of your ability, whether that's more research in the summer or uh, uh, taking a year off, and um, certainly trying to uh, hook up with 
an otolaryngologist at your medical school to just maybe see patients in the office one day and get a feeling uh, for that. And then when you get to apply to residency, uh, learn everything. Because even if you decide early in residency, you want to be a pediatric otolaryngologist, how do you get better? Well, you learn all facial plastics during your residency. So you get to uh, have that when you do your, when you are a practicing pediatric otolaryngologist, and the same with oncology and otology, rhinology, et cetera. So I would encourage you if you want to do all of otolaryngology and you don't want to be a general otolaryngologist, pediatric otolaryngology allows you to do that. All right. So there you have it again. Dr. Max April, Pediatric Otolaryngologist, Fellowship Director at NYU. I hope you got a lot of great information out of the episode today. And if you're interested to learn more, of course, there is a society that you can check out, ASPO.us, the American Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology, ASPO.us. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Mm-hmm.